Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Linda Gordon, professor of history and a university professor of the humanities at New York University. We're going to talk about her new book, well, a book that came out last year, The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and the American Political Tradition. Professor Gordon, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners... I just want to establish the context. Most have heard of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, but they might not know its history and its many rises and falls and iterations. Uh, It was a secret vigilante organization formed by white supremacists in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. Civil War. They carried out acts of violence and intimidation against black people in the American South during the Reconstruction Era. They tried to destroy the Republican governments. Uh, And then the party was suppressed by the federal government in 1871. Now, that doesn't mean the movements and sentiments they represented ever went away. Uh, But the uh, topic of your book and this second coming of the KKK is essentially a new reiteration, a new iteration, a rebirth of the KKK during the 1920s. Right. So what was different? There, There were a huge number of differences. Let's start with the most basic. The first clan was a terrorist group in the literal meaning of that term. Its, its mode of operation was not only violence, but torture. And its purpose was not only to attack particular African-Americans, but to terrorize and intimidate all African-Americans. The second part of that is that it was secret, although its claim to secrecy was probably exaggerated because it seems likely that most uh, uh, influential white people knew exactly who the Klan members were. And third, its uh, hatred was directed especially or almost exclusively at African-Americans in an attempt to maintain them as a very low-wage labor force. The second Klan was very different. First of all, it was in the main completely nonviolent. Not totally, but completely. It was an electoral strategy. Uh, Second difference, it was very much a kind of evangelical Protestant revival. And I think it uh, it underlay over time. uh, It was, you might say, an ancestor of the kind of uh, conservatism that seems to, not only conservatism, but a level of bigotry that seems to be particularly common uh, in American evangelicals in the, starting in the late 20th century. But the largest difference, and the thing that allowed the, the second Klan, as, as people called the Klan of the 1920s, what allowed it to become a mass movement was that it focused its bigotry on Catholics and Jews and particularly on immigrants. Uh, And in that way, it is also uh, very much an ancestor of things we see going on today. Thank you. And um, I suppose another difference you point out in your book is that the geographical scope of the Ku Klux Klan um, kind of became nationwide in the United States during this time. Absolutely. And uh, one of the more fascinating things about it that is actually very revealing about the way bigotry worked is that it had very great strength in areas where there were very few Catholics and Jews. This, for example, included the state of Indiana, which is overwhelmingly 
uh, Protestant, or the state of Oregon, which was not only overwhelmingly Protestant, but overwhelmingly white, with only very, very small numbers of Jews or people of color. I think that's important to understand the way in which it was able to build up this hatred, even in places where there was absolutely not the slightest evidence of any threat or even discomfort from these new kinds of immigrants arriving. So you describe the new clan, the second KKK, as ostensibly nonviolent. And we have to note here that that doesn't mean that there weren't acts of racial violence being carried out that were probably motivated by groups like the KKK during the 1920s because, you know, lynchings and all of that stuff continued. But in your work, you treat it as uh, what you call a social movement. And uh, you note that this label is unusual because most of the social movements we talk about in U.S. history are associated with the left, the feminist movement, the labor movement, uh, movements uh, pursuing social progress in America. So in what ways was the Klan a social movement? Why did you characterize it as such in this work? Well, you know, I did that uh, deliberately because I think it's really important to understand that not all social movements are are constructive and positive. After all, uh, the rise of Nazism in the 1920s and 30s was in large part a social movement. Sociologists have struggled for decades to try to come up with a clear definition of a social movement that fits all varieties of social movements, and I'm not going to try to do that. But I will simply say that what I regard as a social movement is something in which there is really mass participation around some agenda that may or may not include electoral politics. Uh, But I think participation is important. You know, we have a number of large-scale organizations pushing for various kinds of reform today, but many of them, oh, a good one might be NARAL, the Organization for Abortion Rights. But what they want of individuals like me is they simply want you to contribute money. They are not organizing you into action. Whereas the Klan in the 20s was organizing masses of people into certain kinds of action. And and that strengthens it. Because one of the things we do know historically is that participatory social movements uh, have a much greater possibility of growth and uh, being sustained over a period of time because they actually provide people with an activity that is in itself uh, rewarding to those people. And we're talking in the millions. People estimate the size of the 1920s Klan is between three and six million people. Of course, these are very rough estimates. There was always a lot of turnover, but we absolutely know for certain that we are literally talking millions. And that includes, incidentally, one and a half million women organized into the women's Ku Klux Klan. And that's something I wanted to ask you about, because I guess, um, you know, one of the strange paradoxes of describing a group like the KKK as a social movement is that in the U.S., you know, civic participation in movements is generally associated with a civil civic sphere in which people live together in a group that is espousing white supremacy seems incompatible with that. But as you point out, through things like what you call KKK feminism, uh, the Klan also like sort of 
piggybacks on other social movements of the time or, you know, engages with these discourses. So tell us more about that. For example, this is the period of prohibition. And these evangelical Protestants who dominated the Klan were very strong supporters of prohibition. And so there was a lot of overlap, for example, with the Anti-Saloon League, which was an organization that had fought for prohibition, or among women with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was another pro-prohibition Protestant organization. And also many Klan members belong to fraternal orders. This is a period in which, continuing from the 19th century, very, very high proportions of Americans belonged to fraternal orders, and some of them to sororal orders among women. And one function of those fraternal orders, in the absence of any kind of uh, welfare state, was there were often systems of mutual benefit insurance in which people got burial insurance, uh, funeral expenses, etc. In fact, that many of the uh, reports uh, show that the overlapping membership between the Klan and the Masons was particularly great. And when a Klan organizer went into a particular town or city uh, to try to drum up members, uh, they often went first to the Masonic Temple. The Klan... I saw as a kind of a transitional organization between the old-fashioned fraternal orders and between a new kind of organization that was just developing, which might be represented, say, by the Rotary Club, uh, an organization that was created to allow people to network among small business people, to make contacts for jobs, and so on. And in many cases in the North in the 1920s, Joining the Klan was a practical move of upward mobility to help a person make contacts with other members of the community that might be um, economically advantageous to them. Uh, for many people, in other words, joining the Klan was a way of becoming middle class or becoming upper middle class through the connections that you formed. That's a really fascinating way of kind of conceptualizing the Klan as sort of situating itself at the center of all of these uh, social social networks, ostensibly, in, in small cities of America. Yeah, and there's another aspect of the Klan, that I, of the 1920s Klan, that I haven't mentioned yet, that's really vital to understand this. The, the 1920s Klan was a for-profit corporation. The whole thing had been incorporated first by a man called William Simmons, who is the person that got the idea of spreading the Klan to the North. And in fact, literally, when he stepped down from being, quote, the imperial wizard and handed over to another person, the second imperial wizard had to buy the Klan from the first. I didn't it may have been a purchase that was symbolic, uh, for example, a dollar, but that explains the vision. The Klan was a huge money-making operation, and ultimately one of the factors that led to its rapid decline by the end of the 1920s was that its members became more and more aware of the high levels of corruption among its leaders who were constantly using clan money, clan dues, clan initiation fees uh, for their own uh, personal use. People bought mansions, people bought yachts. This was really 
pretty open. And, and I might add that for a lot of people, at first, it may have seemed that this was perfectly okay, because people at that time did not have the notion that people working for a cause should do it in a nonprofit way. Uh, for the Klan, the profit motive was the highest order premise on which American, quote-unquote, greatness rested. And so profiteering did not seem at first uh, reprehensible in many ways. And yeah, that the whole story you tell at the end of the book of how the Klan really sort of crashes and burns, at least the upper leaderships, they're all, they all kind of reveal themselves to be you know, corrupt, but also pretty deranged. And like in some way, we, we won't get maybe into all the details in this conversation. But it is it is a fascinating look at an organization, not just through its ideology, but rather through, you know, materially on the ground, uh, what they were doing. And I want to ask about specifically more about how the KKK influenced legislation in the United States. It actually had a, first of all, a very, very sophisticated turnout the vote uh, operation that um, was entirely modern. One of the mistakes that a lot of people at the time made was they conceived of the Klan as somehow a backward movement uh, of uneducated rural people, et cetera. And that was completely not the case. Klan members were no more uh were no less educated than the majority of Americans and often more so. In the back of my book, I did um, include one appendix because it was very revealing about the electoral strategy. It is a chart that the Klan uh, produced listing every senator in the United States and evaluating the degree to which that senator was friendly to Klan proposals and Klan policies. And again, we see that this is something that prefigures in many ways very, very sophisticated lobbying organizations today. And the Klan did do uh, lobbying at several times in, in many, often in face-to-face -face ways, sending delegations to Washington to meet with congressmen. And they were extremely successful. The Klan elected 11 governors, 45 congresspeople, congressmen, there were no women. And that doesn't count what are probably hundreds of uh, state and local elected officials. And what I am talking now about people who ran openly as members of the Klan. Uh, that doesn't count. Many, many people were not members and found it wiser not to declare that membership, but who essentially agreed uh, with Klan uh, bigotry. I call it bigotry rather than racism uh, because I want people to understand that it's religious bigotry as opposed to only attacks on people of color. It's religious bigotry was really the great energy that built the Klan in the North. Yeah, that's a that's an extremely important point. And it it goes back to your point about the anti-immigration sentiments inside the Klan, that, that they were just as concerned about, say, the, the increased uh, migration of Catholics and Jews and maybe Muslims as well, if they were aware of the number of Muslims who came to the United States. And that's what our, uh, that's what our program actually deals with, is immigrants from the former Ottoman Empire, Muslims, Christians, and Jews of different um, groups. And I wanted to ask about 
this uh, moment of real shift in, in American immigration policy, 1924 and the Johnson-Reed Act. This is, this is the immigration quotas, and it's happening exactly as the Klan is at its peak. Did they have a role in that, or was it merely a symptom of the nativist times they were living in? Actually, they had a direct role in it. Uh, a man called Albert Johnson, who was a congressman from the state of Washington and a member of the Klan, was a key person involved in drafting this law, but he was also the person that shepherded it through Congress. Again, I'm not saying that it was only Klan's people who supported it. I think, in fact, one of the things that we might want to consider is the possibility that the Klan's attitudes towards immigrants, towards Catholics, towards Jews, etc., Muslims, were there, or, and also the Russian and Greek Orthodox, that these views were shared by a majority of white Protestant Americans. And that in some ways, what made the Klan unique was both the intensity of its hatred, its commitment to doing something about that by really excluding uh, those groups of people from America and from American citizenship, but also the sophistication of its organizing methods. I mean, that's that's really startling to think that the one of the lead figures in the drafting of the bill that created our immigration quota system was actually a member of the KKK during the 1920s. And, and I want to have our final question kind of be about the legacy that you talk about at the end of the book. The, the organization itself, as you said, had a real decline in membership uh, very quickly at the end of the 1920s, and then the leaders had intrigues that we won't get into here that sort of uh, killed it. But, you know, you mentioned many elected officials were openly members of the Ku Klux Klan. It once had millions of members. What happens to these people and the movement that they represented? First of all, the fact that they became disillusioned with the organization does not mean that they were disillusioned with its ideas. And those ideas have traveled constantly through U.S. history, sometimes in a kind of undercurrent and sometimes uh, leaping up to the surface. Uh, there are several interesting things about also about the flexibility of those beliefs. So, for example, we do know that quite a few former Klan's people or Klan's men in particular joined the neo-Nazi movements or not neo, the, the American version of Nazi movements that were developing in this country in the 1930s. Uh, they were never mass movements, but there were the silver shirts, the brown shirts, the German-American Bund, who were openly admirers of, of Hitler and his regime, which of course then may seem like a contradiction with the ultra-patriotism of the Klan, uh, but it suggests the, the malleability of these ideas about bigotry. Another example, some Klan's people came to be great supporters of a really important radio personality in the 1930s, a man called Charles Coughlin, who we might see as the original radio shock jock. But this guy, Coughlin, he was a Catholic priest. And yet these Klan's people who had been so anti-Catholic just a few years previously felt quite comfortable in becoming fans of his. Uh, you know, this this kind of move suggests how fluid 
this kind of bigotry can be. But I also think that when we think about this as an American political tradition, we should not fetishize or focus exclusively on the Ku Klux Klan itself, because as we see today among the many, many white nationalist groups, there are all kinds of ways in which those attitudes express themselves in new organizations, sometimes large, sometimes small. So one of the things that we learned through your book is that even as the KKK during the 1920s was a social movement, uh, ostensibly nonviolent, uh, working through the democratic system, it could kind of coexist with the you know, more violent expressions of bigotry that were also going on during that time. And these boundaries between different types of movements and ideologies uh, were fluid to some extent. I guess one last question I wanted to ask about the history is what is the relationship between the second KKK and subsequent iterations of the KKK in America? It's an interesting fact that the the KKK that most Americans know about was the original one in the South. I think because of its intense commitment to violence. The 1920s Klan has been much less written about, and my suspicion is that most Americans don't know about it, and furthermore, that many of the white nationalists who are following in its footsteps, so to speak, also don't know about it. But again, that that underscores my point. We need not focus on the names of particular organizations as on this underlying pattern. You know, the, the pattern is, first of all, based on a false history. The Klan and many, many similar groups make the claim that America has always been a white Protestant nation. That's not correct. Um, there were plenty of people in early America who were not Protestants, and of course, all the people who were not white. But that claim has to do with another deeper sense, which is that American destiny is to be uh, this kind of white Protestant nation. I think that Protestantism has faded out a bit now in the sense that Catholics have been more incorporated into the mainstream of what is acceptable to uh, to Christians, to white Christians. But we are seeing today the reappearance of a lot of anti-Semitism, uh, which the Klan was a master of, the the Klan's promotion of these ugly, ugly uh, stories about, about Jews just spread throughout the United States. And, you know, we even had, in, in the 1920s, there were people who were opponents of the Klan who nevertheless accepted a lot of their beliefs. For example, this is the era in which all the great universities had quotas on the number of Jews they would accept. And in very elite circles, it was completely acceptable to express all kinds of anti-Semitic and even anti-Catholic views. So again, it's really important to understand that Klan ideology at the time was entirely respectable. Wow. Have you seen the the new film, the new Spike Lee film, Black Klansman? I have indeed. I saw it twice. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it from, you know, as a historian? Well, I loved it as a film. You know, I do know I also looked at the the original book on which it was based. And of course, uh, Spike Lee is a filmmaker and he 
changed the plot in a number of ways to make it a more vivid film without violating the, the basic facts. I thought it was an extremely well put together film. The fact that it is at times funny and at times very tense it made me like it even more, as well as did the fact that, that Spike Lee was absolutely explicit in relating it to what's going on going on today. So I, I both thought it was great as a film, and I also really enjoyed its content. Yeah, I, I saw it recently, and, and I had a similar reaction that it was weird to be able to laugh in a film that's really dealing with something um, so... Uh, you know, dark and heavy, and especially the ending, which we won't spoil <laughs> for our <laughs> listeners. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting uh, piece of film. Uh, pairs nicely with this uh, very interesting book, very relevant for our present times. A reminder that uh, the period we're in, people are recognizing parallels with the 1920s and 30s in America, but. I think another lesson we can take away from the book is that these things never really go away entirely. Uh, they ebb and flow and manifest in different ways, but they're part of as what you call the American political tradition. Absolutely. One that we really need to be aware of if we're going to try to uh, control it. Professor Linda Gordon, thank you for speaking with us today. Okay. Thank you for having me. I want to remind our listeners, the book is called The Second Coming of the KKK. You can find a link on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's where you'll also find other interviews related to today's subject. That's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and take care.